Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Well, grace and peace be with all of you gathered here in worship today in the sanctuary and also in our Family Life Center, tuning in not only from that part of our campus, but also we welcome into this time of study the rest of our extended JCBC family who may be worshiping online from home or later this week. Listen, I want to take a moment of personal privilege and say thank you to so many of you who have asked, how did move-in day go with our son? You know, now today begins empty nest. We have moved our son in. And just to give you an idea how it's going, it's going great. Thank you for asking. But last night we got home from Nashville. It's about 4.30 or so, and I've got some work to do on a sermon. And Laura goes to the grocery store to get some groceries. And she came home and said, oh, my gosh. And I said, what? And I looked at the limited number of bags in her hands. And I said, is that all you bought? She said, yeah, that's all we need now. I'm like, okay, the clock has started, but I'd like some Lucky Charms too from now and then. Listen, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And if you are in third, fourth, or fifth grade in our sanctuary or in our Family Life Center, if you're here in worship with us, Uh, On the way in, you should have received your worship um, bulletin, and I want you to pay attention to the questions and the picture that's on there about the Spirit and about where the Spirit came from and what the Spirit did. I want you to pay attention as we read this story because it's a long story, but I want you to listen closely, kids, as we uh, learn what happened on the day that the Holy Spirit revealed himself to the church. Let's read from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them. And a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each of them, each one of them heard speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, 
in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. At which point someone in the back of the crowd said, Well, it's five o'clock somewhere. And Peter said, No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In these last days, it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Will you pray once more with me? Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire and fill us with your holy fire. For if you are with us, then nothing else matters. But if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. We pray in the name of Christ, the Lord of life. Amen. So this is possibly one of, if not the most familiar stories in all of the book of Acts. Today is part three in a study that we're, we're, we're conducting a sermon series all through the book of Acts. And the story of the day of Pentecost may be most familiar to many of us. Pentecost. Penta, 50. 50 days after the Passover Jews from all over the spread out world, all over the diaspora, had come back to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage once again to celebrate a festival that's been on the calendar, the Jewish calendar, for generations, the Festival of Weeks. They come back 50 days after Passover to celebrate, but this Passover festival was different. Of course, they were crowded. It was jam-packed. It was a, a chaotic frenzy, but it was joy. It was an opportunity to rekindle their faith and remember the stories of old. Yet this Passover or this Pentecost was different. It was the day that the Spirit of God was poured out and descended upon the believers there. And as we read a moment ago, each one was given a a tongue or a, a particular language that they had not been trained to understand or speak. And now all of the Jews who had come in from the outside spread out world were now suddenly able to hear the the tales of God's deeds of power in languages of their native country. 
And it was a, a miracle, and Peter stood up and began to preach, and at the end of his sermon, 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And this is one of those passages in the Bible that is so thick with preaching possibilities. You know that, right? There's sometimes you read a passage and you don't know where to start or where to stop the, the sermon because it's, it's just soaked with possibility. It's almost a little bit like Fred Craddock said, some, some passages are like, well, like a, like a wild alley cat. You, you can grab a, a stray alley cat if you're strong enough or quick enough, and you can grab it and hold it tight and you'll be fine. The problem is figuring out where to let go first. That's where you get in trouble. It's easy to grab all of Acts chapter 2. I just don't know what part to let go of. Because today, if I wanted to, if we had all day long, if I had the time, you know what I'd talk to you about? If I had the time this morning, I would talk a little bit about wind. How the image of wind shows up in Acts chapter 2. And it's on purpose because the word for spirit in Acts chapter 2 in Greek is pneuma, which means wind or spirit or breath. And it has a counterpart in the Hebrew language, ruach, which means wind or spirit or breath of God. And it shows up first in the Hebrew Bible in Genesis chapter 1 where God's ruach, the wind, the spirit, the breath hovers over the chaos of creation and brings order out of chaos. And Luke knows that when he writes about the day of Pentecost because there over that chaotic scene, the wind, spirit, or breath of God hovers. And if I had time this morning, I would preach about the reality that in the seasons of life when we feel nothing but chaos, God's spirit is still hovering attempting to bring order and peace and stability to us. See, if, if I had time, I would preach that. But since I, since I don't, I won't. And if I had time this morning, I might talk a little bit about, well, the Tower of Babel. And I might talk a little bit about how the story of Pentecost is held up to be a kind of twin story to the Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11. Because in the Tower of Babel story, here is a story about people who want to make a name for themselves. And they build this ziggurat, this kind of construction up to the heavens. And God decides to punish them by scattering them around the world and giving them different languages. And in Pentecost, Luke knows that. Because here in Pentecost we have a story of a God who once scattered and gave different languages. But here we find a God who is gathering from the scattered places of life. And bringing not confusion but understanding. If I had time I would preach about the reality that our God is a God not of confusion but of order. And one who wants to bring order and understanding to your own heart. But since I don't have time, I won't preach that today. And if I had time, I might even preach about that curious list of nations that we just read a moment ago where, you know, we're reading about all those who were present on the day of Pentecost. And it said, like, you know, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and so on. A great long list of names of all those Jews who had come from the outskirts and cities and countries from around the region back to Jerusalem. And yet what's curious, if I had the time to preach it today, is, is that two of those places that stand up off the page... The Medes, the Elamites, were civilizations that had been extinct for years. 
And I might, if I had some time, ask Luke a question or two about why is it that he would choose to tell us that of all the world and the surrounding neighbors who would come forward on the day of Pentecost, why would he include two kingdoms that had been extinct for centuries? The way Tom Long talks about it, he says, look, the Medes and the Elamites didn't wander over from the the country to the east or west. They wandered over from the pages of the Old Testament. He says, it's almost like Translated, it would be like this. It's saying, well, hey, last week at Johns Creek Baptist, it was fantastic. We had a great crowd. We had some folks from Roswell. We had a family from Montana. There was a bus of folks from Washington, D.C. And there was this car full of of Philistines who visited. And this cute little Hittite couple who went to Sunday school. And if I had time, I would say, wonder what Luke is up to here And I wonder if Luke is attempting to say that the thing that is being poured out on Pentecost is something that God has been hoping to pour out from the dawn of time. And that Luke is giving us a peek behind that veil that at some points in life is so thin between the right now and forever that all the the cloud of witnesses that have gone behind, the communion of saints of old, are leaning forward to watch the pouring of the Spirit to say this is where this whole thing has been going the whole time. But since I don't have time to preach that, I won't. And I might even say, if I had some time, that the images that pop off the page here in Acts chapter 2, images of the sound of wind, of blood, of fire, of smoky mist, you heard those words, are literally images that Luke reaches back to the Old Testament and tugs forward because we hear the sound on Mount Sinai of God convening with Moses. And we hear and see the fire, the blood, and the smoky mist in the, well, in the building of the tabernacle, which we read about in the book of Leviticus. Thank you. And Luke is tugging those forward to say, back in the day when these images reminded you that God was closer to you than you could imagine? Well, at the day of Pentecost, God is closer to you than you could possibly fathom. Because now, through the Spirit, God is constructing a new temple system. And the temple is not made with stone and bricks and sticks. This this temple system that God is establishing in Christ is made by human hearts. And God has come to dwell with humanity closer than even your own pneuma, breath, wind, spirit. So if we were to have time to preach those things, I would. But since I don't, I won't. Instead, today, I want to focus on one passage, one verse. In preparation for this sermon, one phrase popped up off the page and it grabbed me by the collar and said I want you to preach me it's the very first verse of chapter 2 when the day of Pentecost had come they were all together in one place they were all together in one place they were all together What does it mean for the church to be all together? 
Today, it's no surprise to you that that we live in an era that is vexed by division. In every conceivable way, we live at a time that is as divided out there as any time in which any of us have ever lived. We are divided racially, politically, ethnically, nationally, socioeconomically. We are divided between gender, generations, sexuality, even science. We are even divided on empirical on science. We don't agree. And yet, this pandemic, what I said a couple of weeks ago, has only served to, to put under a microscope the kind of division that has been with us for a long time. A couple of weeks ago, I used the word apocalyptic, apocalypsis, which means the unveiling of something that previously would, had been hidden. So apocalyptically speaking, the pandemic has revealed some divisions that have been so deeply rooted, they may have been hidden, camouflaged from our eyes for some time. Just think about, oh, I don't know, the parable of the mask. <laughs> right? I mean, just think of the mask as a simple and silly example of how divided we are. We have mask mandators and mask protesters. And they're all among us. They're all within us. If you could hear the conversations that I have with pastors in churches today and hear the stories of the ways in which we have become divided, you would wonder how we're doing any better than just holding on by a very thin thread. The conflicts, the splintering, the vitriol. And what the pandemic has revealed is that all of the division that for a long time we were comfortable was was, was way out there has only revealed that it, it creeps its way into the church all the time. There are always threats that would undermine our altogetherness. And yeah, I... I read about Acts chapter 2, and I I think in the back of my mind about all of the arguments that we have in churches today about the silliest things, about the most temporary things. And at times it's easy for you and I to think, well, we're living at the most divided time of all. Of course it was easy for them to be all together. But the truth is, in Acts chapter 2, the environment of their context was more divisive than you could possibly imagine. And it was more diverse than it could, you could possibly imagine. It, it was more diverse than we sometimes give it credit for. There at Pentecost was every kind of expression of division. They were divided racially, nationally, politically, even within their own tribes. They would have differences of opinion about the empire and about taxes and They would have even differences of opinion theologically, even within their own faith. They were divided between male and female, young and old. Luke goes to great lengths to even say this context was so diverse, there were living and extinct people present. (laughs) And yet in the middle of that kind of diversity, the text says they were all together. I find myself curious, homiletically curious today. 
Just what was so altogether about their altogetherness? If they were that different and that diverse? Because I think about the great expression of the diversity that we read about there, male, female, young, old, the spirit being poured out on all flesh. Every expression of our magnificently diverse world was receiving the pouring out of the spirit. I ask myself, why? And something that I I sense from this story of Pentecost is because God digs diversity. God digs diversity. The Spirit was being poured out on all flesh because God is comfortable in the areas where we are uncomfortable. God can hold difference and differences together. You and I, we, we, we get uncomfortable. We, we're threatened by it. We even get cynical and upset about it. We, we do what was done in Acts chapter 2 when, when they, they saw people saying things and doing things that they didn't understand. Well, they must be drunk. And isn't that the way we do with the people who represent the other opinion, or the other stand, the other orientation in life, the other position in life? We see them babbling on. We're like, you know, they're intoxicated with the wine of stupidity. How can you possibly think these things, right? That's what we do because we're uncomfortable with the possibility that God may be pouring out God's flesh or spirit on all flesh, even flesh that doesn't look like me or think like me, or believe like me, or pray like me, or vote like me. In fact, do you know how hard it is to maintain a sense of unity in a church today? I mean, I can't even tell a joke that is funny to all five generations. And I can be a pretty funny guy, but we're coming at things from so many different experiences, and yet, do you realize you can't have unity without diversity. I mean, unity without diversity is not unity. That's sameness. God has designed us to be diverse. In fact, I would even say it's not that just that God digs diversity, but God demands diversity. And here's why. In Acts chapter 2, we're about to see the launch of this brand new kingdom where the risen Christ is king of the world. And we're about to see through the rest of the book of Acts how this kingdom, this reign, this realm begins to spread through all of the different geographies of the the known world at the time and allegorically speaking throughout all the geography of every human heart. And in the midst of that kind of spread, God demands diversity because this thing is about to become not just a social club of Galileans who tell good stories about the old rabbi who used to be with them. This is about to become an international multi-ethnic movement. And God demands that the church be diverse and, and would diversify as much as we possibly can. And here's why. Because if the word of good news, if the mystery of God's love is to actually be heard in languages that all the world can comprehend, it's going to take a great magnificent diversity within the church to be able to share that good news. Yeah, until the great revelator is able to speak truth and we see it plainly, like Revelation chapter 11. There we go. 
that Revelation chapter 11 says, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. But you can't you can't build or spread a kingdom in which all the diverse kingdoms and peoples of the world are under your realm unless the, the ones charged with spreading that kingdom are diverse as well. See, this, the church is not intended to be a one-flavor church. I mean, when was the last time you just had beef broth for supper? Beef broth is great, but it's got one flavor. It's nothing like vegetable beef stew. I heard an amen. With vegetable beef stew, if you, you could put a dozen or more ingredients in the crock pot and all day long they simmer together and you open that pot and the steam fogs up your glasses and you begin to salivate because you know some goodness is on the way. But even as you ladle your serving into your bowl, you still recognize that's a green bean and there's a carrot. You know what a piece of celery looks like and well, there's the onion that is still there. Each retains its own constitution, its own form, its own recognizable shape. But simmering together, they become something that they could not become on their own. The church is intended to be a kind of vegetable beef stew. You know why? Because the world is hungry for something that has some taste. And what could be more nourishing and delicious than the tasting and the seeing that God has come to reveal God's own presence in the world through the expressions of our diverse church, right? And so I'll listen to Acts chapter 2. And I'm aware of how diverse and how potentially divisive and conflictual that church could have been. And yet the text says they were all together. So it raises the question in this pastor's heart, just what was all together about their altogetherness. If they were so different and still had opinions that represented opposite ends of the spectrum of any topic on the table, just what was all together about them? And I say that there are two things. What they confessed and what they were willing to do about it. What they confessed and what they were willing to do about it. So what did they confess? They confessed the same thing that you and I confess every time we see someone in the baptistry washing in the waters of renewal right before they are baptized. I say to them, what is your sacred confession of faith? And they say to me and to all the world, Jesus is Lord. The one confession that defined their all-togetherness was that Jesus was Lord, that he was the one and only supreme authority of their lives. And if you confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life, you are actually declaring there is no higher authority, no more ultimate authority that has, has lordship over my life. And when you confess the lordship of Christ, what you're also doing is simultaneously confessing that everything else is not Lord. Maybe this is why Jesus used the marriage as an example to describe the relationship that Christ has with the church. 
the, the church is the bride of Christ because when you stand and give your vows at a wedding ceremony, you vow to one person, I do, but when you say to that one person, I do, you are simultaneously saying, I don't, to everybody else. And in so doing, confessing the lordship of Christ means that the Lord has authority in every realm of my heart. And they were all together about this. And here's, here's what happens when I confess that the Lord is the Lord of my heart. Something changes. I begin to recognize that, well, the things that used to have influence in my life don't have as much influence anymore. It means if Jesus is Lord of my life, well, Caesar cannot be Lord of my life. If, if Jesus is Lord, my nation can't be Lord. If Jesus is Lord, my political party can't be Lord. My, my own opinions, my own position, my own identity, my own sexuality, my own rights and privileges, those things don't have authority. What has authority is Christ. And if Christ actually has authority in my life, that means every day I will wake up and I will yield myself to the power of his way of life. And then all of a sudden, when I see you and you see me and we know the differences of opinion that we have about X, Y, or Z, suddenly it doesn't matter because they've been crucified to the cross. Suddenly they don't matter anymore because in this vegetable beef stew that we call the church, we recognize that in our distinctiveness we are becoming something together, all together, that we could not become alone. They were all together in the lordship of Jesus. And, and when you humble yourself and actually mean what you say when you say Jesus is Lord of my life, that means that there is a perpetual yieldedness. And now you, you take on what Paul compelled us to take on in Philippians chapter 2. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus who although he was in the form of God didn't regard like equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped but instead he emptied himself and he became obedient like a slave even obedient to the point of death death on a cross and therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name to say above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord see they all were in agreement that he was Lord. And in being Lord, it means that I am not. And that means if he truly is Lord, then the, the, the further I walk with him as my guide, as my Lord, then the more I am able to see you through his eyes. And you're able to see one another through his eyes. And that means we don't, any longer hold up the differences as the main thing because all of those have fallen at the foot of the cross because the main thing is that he is Lord of you and me and all of life. They were all together about this. But not only were they all together about what they confessed, they were all together about what they were willing to do about it. Yeah. See, what were they willing to do because he was Lord? Well, the answer, anything. They had seen him walk and heal and lift up the lame and bring sight to the blind. They had seen him restore life to those who had no life, who were dead. And so they were willing to follow him anywhere. 
They saw him crucified and then for 40 days in a row saw him alive. And the more you, the more you see what God is able to do in you and around you, you develop this kind of what I'm calling a holy expectancy. They had learned to expect that when he says he's going to do something, he will do it. They said, Mount me, uh, meet me at um, Mount Olive or the Olivet. And so they met him at Olivet. And he ascended. As he was ascending, wait for the Holy Spirit to arrive. And they waited. And the Spirit arrived. The more you truly live into the Lordship of Christ in your life, the more you recognize, I have a holy expectancy that there is something great about to happen that is beyond my control or my power. And so they were willing to do anything at all to be a part of it. So the text says that to each one of them was given a tongue or a language to speak the mysteries of God in the world. But you know the story is not just about linguistics, right? You know it's not just about learning how to conjugate and, and how to, you know, uh, break down another language. It's not about language. The truth is you are given a language too. And so am I. It's the language of your life. And I, I, I can guarantee you that God has placed someone right now in your life for whom you, the way that you approach life and the way that you live, the way that you speak and talk and, and love may be the only way through which they are able to interpret, hear, and understand that there is a God who loves them too. To each was given a language, to each of us. What are we willing to do? See, the question is not what held them together because what is holding them all together in one place is clear. What held them together was their confession, what they confessed. And what held them together was what they were willing to do with what they confessed. The question is what holds us together? There is as much diversity in these rooms where we find ourselves as, as anywhere in our region. Diversity of thought. Diversity of expression, diversity of how we order our lives. We could use a little bit more diversity in our uh, melanin, right? But we are diverse of every kind of theological, political kind of thought. What holds us together? Because if it is anything other than the lordship of Christ, it will falter. If it is anything other than being willing to live out that lordship, despite our differences, then it will falter. My question for you then is, have you ever come to a place where maybe you have confessed the lordship of Jesus in your own life? And most of us who are in the faith will clearly say, well, yeah, there was a time and I confessed and I was baptized and it was great. But you realize that this is a daily decision that we make. To ask ourselves, what realm of my heart has still been protected by my personality, protected by my own defenses? Is there any realm in me that I have not yielded to the lordship of Christ? And maybe it's about my opinions or my positions in, in all these controversial matters that we discuss from day to day. Is there any realm in me that has not been yielded to the lordship of Jesus? 
And, and, and maybe we ask ourselves, is there anything I'm not willing to do to live out a yieldedness to that lordship? Because I can tell you, if we remain a church that is sold out to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and if we remain a church willing to do whatever that lordship demands of us, the Spirit will be poured out on us just as the day of Pentecost, where each of us in our own calling will find the language of our life and live the language of our life in such a way that someone near us is blessed because they hear and they see and they experience in us the power of God's love.